Are you tired of the mainstream media's condescension, snap judgments, and outrageous bias? National Review's podcast, The Editors, is your oasis of sanity and clarity in a world gone mad. Join National Review writers like Rich Lowry, Charles C. W. Cook, Jim Garrity, Jack Butler, and others for an in-depth analysis and incisive commentary on the latest news in American political life. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode uh, 38 of the Luther Ray Abel podcast. Since I last did a show, I've been floating around the ether, haunting any fortunate or unfortunate soul who hasn't decreased the power to uh, zirconium anti-gravity containers. You know about those. But haunting is actually not all it's cracked up to be. Certainly it's fun to elicit terror in people who haven't been eaten by strange whaling creatures. But, you know, after the first few screams and yelps, you realize that eternity is a long time, and that you're going to need to fill it with more than spooky whistling and the odd jump scare. So anyway, uh, my guest today is... Luther, what are you doing? I'm doing my podcast. You mean you're doing my podcast? (laughs) Well, possession is nine-tenths of the law, and your podcast is now possessed by me. Luther, if you don't leave immediately, I shall go and get the vacuum. (laughs) But I've always wanted my own podcast. I dare say you have, but you can't have this one. This one is mine. Now run along, or whatever it is that you do. Sorry about that. Welcome to episode... What was it? Yes. Episode 38 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This week, we will... I'm still here. (sighs) Well, my sponsor today is CEI's Free the Economy podcast. Health, wealth, and happiness. Three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use and fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree freedom is contagious, so check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org Free the Economy. My guest today is Lionel Shriver, a writer, journalist, and most recently, the author of a National Review cover story about the modern quest for immortality. Lionel, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Charles. So I found this essay absolutely fascinating. The jumping point 
seemed to be that there's a lot of money being spent at the moment, especially by entrepreneur billionaires, to try and extend life, preferably forever. You write early on in the piece that the promise of eternal life has conventionally been the dangled carrot of religion. It is now the holy grail of Silicon Valley. So let's stipulate that. But as far as I understand it, you're neither religious nor a Silicon Valley billionaire. So beyond the the obvious common human incentives, what got you interested in this topic to this degree? Well, to begin with, the National Review asked me to write it. (laughs) (laughs) That got me into it. But uh, I theorized that the reason that they came to me is that someone at the magazine had read my last novel, uh, which is called Should We Stay or Should We Go? And it's about a couple uh, that uh, promise each other when still in their early 50s that they are not going to fall apart expensively and unpleasantly as they become elderly. And once they both crossed the age of 80, they're going to commit suicide together and have a good life and then call it quits. It sounds like kind of a downer book, but it isn't. (laughs) It isn't. It's a lot of fun because um, it's a parallel universe book and it's got 12 different endings, all exploring different possible ways that this vow of theirs might resolve. And of course, in more than one uh, of these endings, they decide, you know, we're not that sick. Forget it. And then you explore what they might have missed had they gone through with their suicide pact or what they might have escaped. So in one of these scenarios, there is a cure for aging. And everyone stops aging at the age of 25. If you were 80 years old, you go backwards and you look 25 again. And everyone, you know, as long as they continue to look both ways before crossing the street, lives forever. So it's an experiment. It's a mental experiment in immortality and what that might be like on an individual level. And Unsurprisingly, at first, it's great. You know, it was exhilarating to watch your spouse grow younger for once instead of little by little fall apart and go back to to the age at which you met and rediscover that level of attraction and, and, and excitement. And, you know, given that uh, you you now live forever, you get to explore all the things that you thought there wasn't time for. So you can explore any hobby. You can change jobs as many times as you want. Lots of people get married dozens, if not hundreds of times. So the the whole thing of choice, well, choice becomes infinite. The trouble is that choice being infinite becomes a funny kind of hell. I mean, think of being in the supermarket and there's an entire aisle of crackers (laughs) when you just wanted saltines. The problem with that kind of smorgasbord approach to life 
is that it no longer seems to matter what you choose. The reason that we agonize over a lot of decisions we make, where to live, whether to accept a job offer, whom to marry, these things matter because they're permanent decisions and you can never remake them. Maybe you can have more than one career in one life if you organize it properly, but you, you probably can't have a dozen careers, much less a hundred. And besides which, the clock is always ticking. So it really seems to matter how you spend a given year of your life because you'll never get that year back. And that means we live our lives in a state of some urgency and we care about the decisions we make. And when the decisions don't matter anymore, I, I, I envision a malaise settling on just about everybody. All right. Well, you, you have a passage on that where you write, and I'll quote at length if I may, finitude gives our lives urgency. A clock is ticking in the back of our minds from an early age. Our decisions seem to matter because they cannot be remade. It's vital how we spend our 35th year because we will never be 35 again. Were we blessed or cursed with an indefinite lifespan absent physical decay, how we spend year 35 would be of no consequence. All decisions could be remade. Choose this profession, later choose another. Choose this wife or this city, later choose another. In my mind's eye, I conjure pervasive lassitude, inertia, apathy, and bewilderment. In should we say, immortals are tortured by suicidal ideation, although killing themselves is just one more thing they can't be bothered to get around to. Now that is an argument that I can absolutely see. Finitude gives our lives urgency. But in another passage, you seem to think that that argument, which really applies to the individual, mm -hmm. extrapolates out and would, if people didn't have finitude, make the world a worse place. You write, the vision of a species that is calcified into the same individuals forever with no renewal, no turnover, no children is ghastly. Why? Why do you assume that a society, as opposed to an individual life, in which people live forever would calcify and lack renewal, turnover, or children? Wouldn't people have children who would also live forever but produce more children and, and so on? Well, you can't keep having children if you have a population that lives forever. I mean, that you would exhaust your resources. It would be an economic catastrophe. The price of property would go through the roof. You know, you'd have a crisis of fresh water and minerals and everything that we need to consume to survive. You, you'd have a huge overpopulation problem on your hands. So people would stop having children, essentially. And they, they would have to. In, um, in the chapter that I explore this immortality thing in the book, people soon need a license to get pregnant. And th those pregnancies are only to replace people who did not look both ways before crossing the street. But otherwise, what w we envisage is, it's a kind of acceleration of what seems to be happening in the West anyway, of people living much longer and not reproducing. It's not, it doesn't seem to be a, a, a very happy vision. After all, you you know, t when you talk about society, so society is just a collection of all those individual experiences. So 
there's no big difference between talking about what immortality would be like for an individual and what immortality would be like on a societal level. I mean, for example, one of my deepest fears is running out of ideas for novels. And I'm hoping that I will continue to get enough ideas that I can keep pursuing my profession until I die. Most writers would hope that. But if I lived forever, would I really keep coming up with ideas for books? Might I instead discover that there was, you know, I was infinite, but my imagination was finite. So I would potentially be looking at a, at a life in which early on, I'd said what I had to say, I'd come up with the inventions that, that I had in me, and then I would be looking at a life which was fundamentally unproductive in my own terms. And I would be denied one of my greatest pleasures, which is making up stories, good stories, not imitative stories, not stories written for the sake of it, but something that I think makes a contribution. And that's an exciting experience. And I love that. And a life deprived of that seems profoundly depressing to me. Well, that brings me to my next question then, which is, and I'll again quote at length, based on something you wrote in this magazine piece. At the end, you make the hypothetical case for eternal life. And you write, we could learn new languages, master new skills, think how great my tennis game could grow. We could make an unlimited number of new friends for whom we'd always have time as an unending string of Tuesday 8 p.m. dinner dates extend before us. We could read every work of literature ever written from Cervantes to Stephen King. We could listen to every piece of music ever composed from Bach to R.E.M. We could indulge our every fascination. We could synthesize this civilizational treasure trove and come to a comprehension of the universe and ourselves that isn't on offer with a paltry century or so to figure everything out. Shedding mortality's inbuilt fearfulness, we could achieve unexplored depths of intimacy with other people. We could roam distant galaxies once short lifespans no longer constrain the range of manned spacecraft. We'd never kick ourselves for having accomplished so little on a given day, because any hiatus of productivity would be costless, and we might learn to redefine what being productive means. We could finally afford to revel in the scent of lavender, the chord of C minor, the glow of vermilion. And then you have an ellipsis and you write, I'm sorry, but why is it that whenever I write optimistic scenarios, they come out sounding like satires? Why does that sound like a satire? To me, that sounds great. And it sounds as if it does or ought to present a counter argument to the one you just made, which was that you might diminish in your capacity to do the thing that you really love. Why would all that not be a solid consolation prize? I mean, that section you just read was indeed trying to make the counter argument. And I thought that was worth doing. I have an instinctive catastrophizing streak and therefore have a tendency to look at the negative. After all, most good stories come out of bad things. <laughs> so, yeah. And I enjoy bad things, especially just theoretical bad things, bad things on paper. But I did find that that passage is at, toward the very, very end started to decay into a kind of 
improbable optimism, a sunniness that, given the nature of our species, sounds unlikely. Because you just, as a human being, are unlikely to gain that much pleasure for that long in the scent of lavender or the chord of C minor or the glow of vermilion. Yeah, and most people are only so capable of relish. And maybe that's one of the things that I would fear running out of. In fact, there is one point in this essay where I posit it is entirely possible that immortality would drive a proportion of humanity insane. And given how many, how many people are mentally ill already, I find that credible. I don't know whether we're built for immortality psychically. I think we're very dependent on death. We may not think so, but this whole business of being born and eventually dying, it gives our life a sense of structure. We may not completely understand it, but it, it is something. It is something with a beginning, middle, and end. And that, that comprehension of ourselves and also that comprehension of ourselves as part of a race, a species, that itself is ongoing, but we're only a small part of it. That's huge in terms of our self-conception, in terms of the conception of societies. It's crucial to our experience of time. I, I think that were we to be just the be-all and end-all, that puts a, like there, there are no, we have no more progeny. There are no generations coming after us. That puts huge pressure on the people who are, as I said, either lucky or unfortunate enough to be this last generation, to do something with it or to, and yet there's nothing about simply sticking around indefinitely that means that you're special or that you have something particular to contribute, that, you know, you won't sit in front of the TV all day. I, I find this paradoxical in a sense in that I agree with everything you just said about what mortality does to our conception of self and as a conservative I think it is really important to understand that we have a beginning middle and end and that we aren't the be all and end all I also find it annoying and depressing <laughs> in <laughs> the sense that although I don't necessarily want to be m more than anyone else I would prefer that I were not so inconsequential in the universe. I watch a lot of shows about dinosaurs with my small children. <laughs> and they're set, if you will, 65 million years, 100 million years, 200 million years ago. And you just think about the amount of time that has passed. And then you compare it to the amount of time that you will have on this planet and if you fast forward in your mind another 65 200 million years or whatever the sheer what's the word inconsequentiality inconsequentialness <laughs> of inconsequence i'll go for inconsequence that's a good one mm -hmm. the sheer inconsequence depresses me i mean I, actually i tell you what it does more than that it scares me, not because it in any way diminishes my sense of self, but because it implies and conjures up an image of a universe that is so big and that is operating on such a, an enormous scale that I can't really 
conceive of it. Now, there will be people who are listening to me say that who say, well, yes, and that's because you're an atheist. That's because you're a nihilist who believes in nothing. And maybe that's true. (laughs) I certainly am an atheist. You see a link between what you call the waning of traditional religious faith in the West and this increased, quote, determination to seek life everlasting here on Earth. Is that correct? Yes, I do. But you also say, quote, I wonder how many folks who still embrace mainstream religions genuinely believe they're going to heaven. That's a fascinating line. Why do you wonder that? It's probably unduly based on my personal experience of watching my parents age and eventually perish. They were both highly religious, but especially in my father, who was president of Union Theological Seminary, in addition to being a, an ordained Presbyterian minister, I never sensed in him any eagerness to die. <laughs> And never sensed in him, especially as the inevitable approached, that there was something to look forward to or that he was, that he had faith that he was merely passing into a finer, more beautiful existence. He had no desire to die, and he never talked about heaven. Now, this is a certain kind of religious person. But I just thought, here's somebody who was a Christian his whole life, but it was pretty clear to me that he, up against it, he didn't believe it. Now, I want to go back to what you were talking about a little bit earlier. Sure. And that was, you know, the immensity of the universe and how it makes you feel. I have a very different emotional reaction to, for example, stargazing. I find it a great relief. I love the fact that I'm tiny in the big picture. It means that I'm not responsible for much, that everything that I worry about is unimportant. (laughs) I love the fact that many of the things that consume my current life, you know, I'm famously anti-woke, as we now say. So all this dumb shit that I'm battling on a daily basis and that I read about all day long is going to go away and it won't have mattered. And I love that. And I even enjoy the fact that the human race will also go away and there will be something else. Why? There will always be something else. I think brilliant. You know, we, we're an interesting phenomenon and, and have accomplished a lot and may accomplish more, though as time goes on for me, it's hard for me to understand what accomplishing something means. I mean, does it really matter if we make it to other planets? I don't know. But I'm, I just love the fact that this is such a huge place that we cannot understand it. And I glory in my ignorance And I glory, therefore, in everyone else's ignorance. And it makes us all kind of the same. And it makes all of our petty political cares mere bagatelle. And I guess that is ultimately my approach to death as well. It is oblivion means 
not having to worry about all this dumb shit anymore. I like worrying. After, I all, think. after all, my my theory about immortality it, and it is mostly that we would all get bored. In fact, it con- connects up with a passage in uh, an earlier novel of mine called So Much for That. And it's uh, in the lead up to one of the main characters committing suicide. And it seems to be a running theme in my work. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's like three solid pages. It's nothing but a list. And it's a list of dumb shit that he has had enough of. It's got a regular re- refrain through, throughout that passage. They can have it. I foresee a lot of people, given immortality, reaching that spiritual point of having just had enough of everybody else's bullshit and wanting to call it quits. Has your approach to these questions changed over time? I mean, for example, are you more bored now than you used to be? Is that one reason why you worry about that? Do you find yourself thinking, well, I'm more bored than I was 15 years ago. 15 years hence, I shall be more bored than this. Give me another thousand years and I want to jump off a cliff. Yeah, more bored. That's a good question. Um, I'd have to say that in my latter life, uh, my activities have narrowed a little bit in a way that saddens me. And I think, but that's, I think, when you have a career, that's what happens. I used to do a lot of visual art. I used to love to dance, which I didn't, don't do much anymore. I used to play squash, and now I only play tennis. So that's a narrowing of interest in a way and a diminishment. I wouldn't say I'm getting more bored, but I am definitely getting more exasperated. And a lot of that has to do with the time in which we are all currently living. I mean, I've never been surrounded by more insanity and silliness in my life. The weirdo obsession with transgenderism and all these children being mutilated and told they have to choose whether they're male or female. It's patently absurd. The obsession with race right now is exhausting and tiresome and counterproductive. It is boring. It couldn't be more boring. So that's really, that's the quantity that I'm topping out on. And at a certain point can foresee saying, you know, you can have it, right? You assume I'm it's going to get worse. I, it's only, well, unless it, if, it, if, if, I, if it resolves itself and, and positively, and ideally I will have helped to contribute to bringing this stuff to a conclusion, that's one direction to go. I mean, after all, I, people are asking me all the time, as if I could say, how long is this woke stuff going to last? When is it going to be over? And if, it, it's either going to be over or at a certain point I'm going to quit. And gonna, I'm going to stop saying self-evident, sensible things because they don't make any difference. And I will simply withdraw from the conversation. Because at a certain point, it is boring. You keep having the same dialogue with people who aren't listening. And you give up. And I, can, I could see giving up. Now, you know, in a way, that's, that's a sort of death. That's a little social and political death. 
but there are other things in the universe. It's that, it's that, that's what I'm talking about. This uh, sensation of looking up at the stars or watching a movie about black holes or what have you. It's a big place out there. There are many things. There are many objects and phenomena and colors and sounds and fascinating little animals. And I don't have to spend my time worrying about a very specific political neurosis in 2023. True, true. But I think where I find that universe scary, as I was saying, is that it will eventually swallow up the tiny parts of it that were mine. I mean, here's a silly example. In March, we went to Universal Studios here in Florida. We took our two kids and I took my seven-year-old, it was for his birthday, so he was just seven, on a roller coaster themed to Harry Potter. And he loved it so much. And the, the memory of it will stick with me forever. It was one of the great father-son bonding moments. And there will be a point, very soon, you don't need to think in terms of dinosaur eras, <laughs> very soon, in the grand scheme of things, at which no one will remember or know about that. That will disappear up into the ether. Now, of course, it doesn't matter to most people, nor should it. It's my life, but it's hugely important to me. I find it quite sad and alarming to think that, that, you know, I don't know anything about my great-grandparents, but they must have had fascinating and rich lives they didn't have any money but they fell in love and talked and did things and laughed and and it's gone it's just completely gone and i you know there's a there's a saying some people use that when a human dies that they take with them the library of alexandria because they've built up all of this knowledge and intuition and experience and wisdom and it just goes away i think that's the bit that bothers me. I can see that perspective, but I think it's a mistake to to equate value and duration and, and endurance. That experience with your son happened. After all, there, there are an awful lot of uh, science fiction writers who posit about, you know, time being actually spatial and everything that has ever happened still is. Yeah. still exists somewhere, then I don't need that paradigm. But that experience happened. That's all that matters. It is. It was precious to you at the time. It is what has also happened is your recollection of it and the sweetness of that. And what has also happened is your sense of dread of losing it, which is also, it has a, a certain poignancy. I mean, there is something beautiful about things that die, that don't last. It is a part of what makes them precious, is the, the fact that they don't stick around, you know? And it, you, you buy a bunch of flowers and put it in water, and they are absolutely gorgeous, and there's an interesting little time there. They're not, they're not dead yet, but you see the first decay. Yeah. And there's an eloquence to that. It's the kind of thing that painters paint. 
you know, not necessarily just the the flower as it at its peak, but it's just starting to go. And it's I just I I just think that there's a strange thrill to that. And I I agree. I you know I'm I'm definitely a, one of those savvy savvy people. I I still have my scrapbooks from third grade. I find it very difficult to give up objects. And I am more conscious than ever that I will be leaving behind when I die with no children a big pain in the bomb of clearing off my my possessions that aren't going to be valuable to other people. They're just not. They're just going to be a problem. <laughs> I'm glad to get out of that too, by the way. I, I, I get to dump the problem of my household on someone else. <laughs> There's another paradox. And, and, and because I, I invest a lot of objects with the kind of meaning we're talking about, because they, they mean they represent an experience or a relationship. It saddens me a little to think of them in in a dumpster, uh, but they've already served their purpose. They've been precious to me in my life. And I think there's just a way of finding your own um, clinging to life and everything about life and your life that has meant something to you as itself precious. There's something about that not wanting to let it go it's the it's the, the the impulse to make meaning that is good positive thing and 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 it is it is ideal for both of us to die reluctantly you know to think well maybe at least to feel that we've done our best and it was fun and to not want not want to leave you know right that is an indication that maybe we did something right. People who are just sitting around waiting to die in a state of eagerness to get out of here are doing something wrong. You mentioned the flowers and there being a period when they're not dead yet, but they're nearly dead and there being a certain beauty about that. And yet you write in this piece that you're more scared of aging than death. You're more worried about being in that state than you are being dead do you look more favorably on efforts to keep people healthy while they're alive or young while they're alive than to extend or permanently extend life yeah i think that's where the research should be focused that's what's really important i mean i personally this is completely typical for the boomer generation of which i'm a member i hate the idea of uh, being decrepit. I'm vain enough that I don't like the idea of becoming someone who's crusty and wrinkled and curled up. I hate the idea of incapacity, disability, not being able to play tennis anymore, being a burden on other people. The whole aging thing is a big drag, let's face it. And uh, it's also very expensive. These long dragged out what they are that with effectively long dragged out deaths, people living way beyond a, a normal lifespan, but not really getting anything out of it to speak of. Often their minds are gone. How much better 
it would be is if we lived the same number of years, right. but in good health, with all our faculties about us, still mobile, still independent, living at home, not in one of these, you know, warehouses, and then drop dead cleanly. That seems to me highly desirable on every level, on the individual level and also on the sociological one. And that's what we should be striving for, not to live forever, but to live well for as long as possible, to cure the afflictions of aging, which doesn't necessarily mean immortality. Do you have any sense of whether we will ever crack this code? Obviously, this is a scientific question. (laughs) I'm not a biologist or even close to one. You write in the piece that you don't expect it to happen within your lifetime. That, by the way, is another thing I would find quite annoying. If I died the day before they solved death, it would be like being one of the people who died on the last day of the First World War. But irrespective of whether it's good or bad, do you think this is something we will eventually manage or is your expectation that it's a pipe dream? I think it's possible that we will make some progress on the anti-aging front. I keep putting off getting my knees replaced because I want them to come up with stem cells to inject in the joint instead so they don't have to hack my knees apart. And this is the kind of thing you're talking about. I figure my luck would be I finally get my knees replaced and then next week (laughs) they've come up with something much better and painless and perfect. I think that the progress that we're likely to see is going to be incremental, you know, in the same way that we've made progress on cancer. Little things, figuring out how to rejuvenate your skin a little bit to keep your joints from decaying a little bit. I think a sweeping cure for aging is biologically unlikely. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's where I'd be, I'd definitely be a candidate. I am skeptical about the immortality project, but I'm sympathetic with the anti-aging project, but only up to a point. I included in the essay, uh, I don't remember his name, Brian, what's it's, he got a lot of press recently. He's he's one of these uh, big tech entrepreneurs who's made his money pretty young and uh, doesn't need to work anymore. He's a billionaire and has dedicated his life to remaining as young as possible. And it's a punishing regime. He exercises for hours every day. He gets injections of his transfusions, sorry, transfusions of his 17-year-old son's blood regularly, which seems a little vampiric to me. (laughs) Um, And, you know, his his whole life is now about sustaining his life. And that seems invidious to me. Yes. I get my exercise. Okay. And I try to eat all right. But I'm not going to make this the only thing I think about or all I do all day long. And that seems to me to be a trap and anti-intellectual on top of it and 
and very boring. Yeah. Very, very boring. I think we agree on this completely. I try to stay healthy. I have responsibilities to my children, my wife, my job, but there are some people who get into trying to stay in shape or eat healthily or what you will, not quite to the extent of having transfusions of their children's blood, but nevertheless, who I think are going to reach 90 years old and say, well, I stayed alive for a long time, but I didn't live very much. I think about this with drinking. I'm a big mm. drinker. I like drinking. I was raised to drink. I don't mean that I have a drinking problem. I don't. But my parents love wine. When I was a teenager, I was introduced to this, as is the case in Britain and in France, where we spent a lot of time. And I don't usually like having a meal without wine. And when I go to the doctor and the doctor says, how much wine do you drink? Uh, I don't lie. I tell him. And then he says, well, you do realize that that's above what you're supposed to drink. And I say, yes, I know. <laughs> and <laughs> I do know. But I also don't care because I don't want to live forever and spend every single second of the day and every meal time making the time that I have, especially as a relatively young person, worse. So I agree with you on that, that the idea. Oh, yeah. And, and you know what? I honestly think, and by the way, I'm with you on the wine. Um, <laughs> it's one of my main pleasures. Right. And if I had to do a deal that I get to drink the wine that I drink now in the quantity I drink it, and I think I do lie to doctors, um, <laughs> like most people, um, and, and I would trade five years off the end of my life. I think I'd do it. After all, those last five years is probably going to be the most crap years. Yeah, and it comes off the end. So, it's not as if it gets taken from the middle. As long as I get, you know, my petite Syrah <laughs> with my hamburger. Right, right. I think that is important. That is the one side of this that I find absolutely baffling to spend every single minute with a longevity doctor on some sort of regimen worrying about dying and to what end. As I say, my great worry about this, my sadness, is that the great moments disappear. Not that I would end up at 80 saying, oh my goodness, I did all of that work and now I'm, now I'm heading out, as it were. Normally, what I do at the end of these interviews, Lionel, is I ask the guests whether they're positive or negative or optimistic or pessimistic about what it is that we've been talking about. But this one is sort of outside of that rubric. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's going to happen whether or not you're pessimistic or optimistic about it. So I guess it's probably most appropriate just to say thank you very much for coming on and and auger the death of this particular episode it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you well i've enjoyed talking to you and i will at least respond to your last question sure. on a more general uh level of my own uh orientation and demeanor i consider myself highly negative and pessimistic but it's joyful pessimism i love catastrophizing it is entertainment for me. And therefore, I think it's got a positive and optimistic gloss. When I can't catastrophize, I am not making myself miserable. 
I am glorying in my own negativity. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining the podcast. <laughs> All right. Until next time. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Lionel Shriver. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you.